life of our church. We, um, we try to have uh, what we call, as we're having right now, a Covenant Institute class. We have Covenant Institute classes, courses, and conferences, and um, uh, the classes are more like tonight's going to be, kind of a one-shot deal. We usually always end those with question and answer. So just kind of, just so you'll know the format of the night, um, we will, uh, John's going to teach kind of for two longer segments. He'll teach, take a break, teach again, and then we'll have a question and answer. Um, During the question and answer time, okay, it's it's certainly not um, illegal to raise your hand and ask a question. You can do that. But we kind of want to get you guys used to using the text-to-pastor line, okay? So I want everybody to go ahead and take your phone out. Everybody get your phone out. Get your phone out. Go to, like, the place where you type in numbers, however that works on your phone, and type in 678-658-951-951-9041. And then... Put save contact, okay? And then you could type in like Christ Covenant, text a pastor, whatever you want. You can actually use this number. You can actually call this number, and sometimes somebody picks up. Um, or well, I got a test, okay? Y- y'all all test me real quick. Y'all send me a text. I'll tell you what, y'all, y'all send some, te- uh, some tests, and I will randomly choose from these tests for some giveaways that we have tonight. Um, as y'all are testing, I want to go and introduce John. Of course, our speaker tonight is John Wachekwa. Because you registered for the conference, you get a copy of his book produced by Crossway. Everybody's getting one tonight, John. Sales went up this week. Sales went up this week. But uh, you get a copy of his book, Prayer, uh, How Praying Together Shapes the Life of the Church. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a really, really helpful book. I read it, you know, shortly after it came out, I guess, and it was just really encouraging to me. Um, and so I probably want to reread it just as we kind of go into this year. But um, you can pick one up. They're on this table over here on the way out. Uh, John Hales uh, from the great state of Texas. You're born and raised? Born and raised, Texas. Played basketball at uh, Baylor. He's a bear. We have any bears in here? We got some Aggies. What's the, do the, do the Sikkim thing, Nick. There we go. All right. How was that? Was that pretty strong? I was, yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, and, and, uh, and then John, John, John and I, we, we were just kind of talking, we were having a good time. We, we have a lot of common ministry kind of connections, but John came over to Atlanta. Y'all moved in 09 or 08? 09. To start what is now Blueprint Church. Um, Blueprint Church over in the old fourth ward. Blueprint's kind of the grandfather of the, like, new Atlanta church planting movement that's kind of going on. We all, all of our, the other little uh, church plants kind of look to them as, like, our little heroes and, and because they've just done such a great job and had such a faithful ministry. So John was a part of that. He was one of the teaching pastors, one of the pastors there. God obviously has blessed that ministry in an amazing way. And then in, was it 16 or 15? 2015, June? Yeah, I got you. I know. Yeah, I got you, man. I'm following you, John. But anyway, June of 15, John and some others they had kind of started moving over to the West End, and then they started Cornerstone Church, which is uh, God's just been doing amazing things through that ministry. Uh, just this last year, they were able to get a, a building and um, just really have a vital and or a vibrant and a thriving ministry right there in the West End. 
Uh, and John has just done an amazing job uh, leading that ministry, leading that effort. Uh, he is an incredibly, as you're going to see, um, gifted teacher and preacher. He's a wonderful pastor. Uh, he's a wonderful husband to uh, his sweet wife. They have one uh, little daughter together, Ava, and um, he's just an all-around just wonderful man. And he's he's a really good basketball player. He, he, he played for Baylor, and, and, and as great as Blake Rogers is, John has like the, in, the, the, the toughness, the defense of Blake, but he's got the outside shot of Matt Papa. So he's like the complete player. Um, and so anyway, he's, he really can ball. But um, so grateful that he's here tonight. Um, and, uh, but before we begin, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to give you a couple of books based on, oh man, you guys went a lot. So save this number. All right, let me, let me pick out a couple of... Um, a couple, hold on a second, here we go. All right. All right, well, actually, a lot of y'all I have saved in my phone. It came through because it, uh, so I tell you what, I, this one's one I don't have saved, and I mean no offense, but you're going to win a book, 214-681-1033. All right, all right. All right, you got, you got a choice. You got a choice, Jack, between the story of John G. Patton. Have you ever read this book? But this is that book. Well, it may be abridged. No, I think it's the, I think. All right, well, if you've read this, have you ever read Celebration of Discipline? Okay. This is a great book. We're talking about prayer tonight, but Richard Foster, kind of a classic spiritual disciplines book. Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster, incredible book. Congratulations, man. All right. All right. So the, the patent book, it's not particularly about prayer, but a lot of prayer is involved in this great, um, in this great story. All right, one more. 678-520-5041. All right. Hey, congratulations, David. Have you read this book? Okay. David, you're going to love this book. So incredibly encouraging. All right. Well, let me pray for John, and then uh, we'll let him get going. Remember the text of Pastor Line throughout the night. That we are going to do question and answer, and so if you have a question throughout the night, please uh, don't hesitate to, to jot it in. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Father, thank you so much just for the grace of uh, this evening to sit together uh, as believers. Uh, Father, I pray that as John teaches us on prayer, that this would just not be some sort of a mental ascent time. Um, but that you would anoint his words to pierce our hearts and to shape us, Lord, to lead us to uh, a deeper dependence on you, uh, a greater recognition of your glory, uh, a greater wonder at your beauty and your worth. Uh, and, Father, ultimately, that, that in all of that, our lives and our hearts and our minds would turn toward you and that through us, you'd be glorified. And so, Lord, that's our hope. Uh, we pray that you would even just do this now um, as you minister through your servant, John, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good evening. All right, please, more energy than that, y'all. I've, I've, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old um, at home, and my uh, wake-up time in the morning is very, uh, very early, so I am going to need Feedback. So feel free to yeah talk back, raise your hand, interrupt, talk. All of that um, is good. I really want to make uh, the best use of our time today. Well, uh, 
Man, I was honored to get the call from Jason. Uh, I don't know a whole lot of y'all, and y'all don't know me, uh, but I love y'all's church. We pray for y'all. Grateful to be here. It is a true honor. Um, I have way more content down here that I can get through tonight, so I'm going to skip a lot of the pleasantries, and I'm just going to pray, and we're going to jump in. All right? Let's pray. Um, Our Father, we come to you right now because uh, you tell us that we can, that we have access to you because of what your son um, did on the cross for us. And so I pray we would take or make full use of that tonight, Father. Um, I pray that none of us in here would feel guilted into praying more, but as a result of our brief time here, our hearts would be filled uh, with the gratitude that's necessary to fuel the type of prayer life that enables us to drink from you, our living fountain, Father. So we pray that you would refresh us tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. I'm uh, going to try to be mindful of the time. I don't see a clock back there, so I just got something up here. Uh, raise your hand if you struggle with prayer. It's okay to be honest. Um, all right, so if you struggle, um, I've got three maybe not so encouraging encouragements for you to help start off our time. Three, and then we'll move right on in. The very first one is this. Um, if you struggle with prayer, be encouraged by the fact that you are not the only one. Uh, one of the things that I've learned uh, in the past is that if I ever struggle with anything, um, all I have to do is go into Google, type what I struggle with, and I realize there's approximately 40 million people um, that have dealt with the same thing. If you go into Google and type in struggle with prayer, you'll likely get 40 million results. Uh, so just know you're not the only one. I hope you're encouraged by the other hands that were raised here too. Um, and this one is probably the most not so encouraging one. Um, if you struggle with prayer, uh, even if tonight fixes something, tonight won't be the last time. You know, struggling with prayer is not like the chicken pox, right? You know, you get it once, you find out what went wrong, you fixed it, and then you're all good. Uh, struggling with prayer uh, is rooted in pride, and pride is more like the flu. There's a bunch of ways that you can get it. Prosperity can give us pride because instead of uh, our hearts being filled with gratitude for what God has done, we take it for granted. Uh, adversity can fill us with pride. Because instead of crying out to God and acknowledging that we need his help, we can grow apathetic. Um, so you're not the only one. It won't be the last time. But the third one is this. If you struggle with prayer, uh, people worse than you have made a complete 180 um, and their lives were changed. So uh, I'd like to think that you and I... Um, have enough pride or fear of man to where if Jesus Christ was in the flesh right now and he asked us to stay up with him and pray, we likely would. Uh, and there were three men that couldn't. But as we're going to see at the end of our time, their entire lives and philosophies of prayer were changed. And it was on the backs of this prayer movement 
um, that this uh, Christianity, what you and I know of to, to, uh, today, we experienced it as we have. So I say all of that just to say this. Yeah. The first step towards praying more, and I want you to hear this, is desire. And what do you do when you don't have the, the desire that you want? You pray that God would give you the desire. God, I don't want to pray, but I know that I should want to pray. So, Lord, help me want to want to pray. And if you're here, it's likely because you want to want to pray. Um, and so that's the first step in the right direction. So here's what we are going to do. There's lots that I'm going to... Uh, breeze through. There's so much that can be said about prayer. I want us to spend the bulk of the time on Jesus's preaching on it and his practice of it. But before we do that, I want to set a paradigm for what it is. And that's where, why we're going to be in Psalm chapter 13. So feel free to turn to Psalm chapter 13. As I set a little bit of context, um, five years ago, right before our church launched, I started to see a counselor because I was severely depressed. Six weeks before our church started, my brother um, suddenly died. And so I went from being this um, crazy optimist who could literally count on my hands the amount of bad days I had in my life to kind of this unbroken streak of just rain clouds. So uh, my wife felt like she was married to a different person. People that knew me felt like they, they didn't know me. I felt like I didn't know me and I didn't know what was wrong. And so I go to this doctor and as we sit down and talk, um, he says, John, I think you're severely depressed. And then what he does on a sheet of paper, um, he writes me a prescription for these uh, herbs, natural, natural herbs, herbs that were legal in all 50 states, right? Um, he writes it down. And I leave from his office. And do you know what I had for the first time in months? A smile on my face. Do you know what changed? No, nothing. Absolutely nothing about my condition changed. I had a piece of paper that was a prescription, but that piece of paper was hope. It was this bridge that promised to, to take me to the other side. All I had in my possession was hope, uh, but that hope was enough to change the rest of my life. And it did. And I bring all of that up just to say or just to frame our time. When we talk about prayer, uh, that's what it is. Prayer is simply this. Prayer is God's prescription for life in a fallen world. Prayer is God's prescription for life in a fallen world world. The beginning part, I would love to say I was brilliant enough to find this out on my own, uh, but like so many of the things that I've learned in my life, I found it in a good book. Gary Miller writes this book called Calling on the Name of the Lord, and it's this biblical theology of prayer where he traces 
prayer in the Bible. And as far as praying goes, this is one of the most helpful uh, books that I've read as he just sets this paradigm of what prayer is. And one thing that he helps us see is this. First and foremost, prayer is something that's reactive, right? You and I don't initiate when it comes to prayer. You and I respond. God is the initiator. God's made a promise. And when you and I pray, we're simply asking God to do what he already wants to do. Psalm chapter 13. Uh, turn with me there. Um, and I just want to read Psalm 13 verses 1 through 6. Most of the times when you come to the text, it's important for you to set context for you to know what was it that caused him to write this psalm. We know David wrote the psalm. What we don't know is the context behind this psalm, but what you find out as you read this psalm is you don't have to know the context behind this psalm. If you've ever prayed for God to do anything in your life, then you could fill in the context of this psalm. Just, yeah, hear it. Listen. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Or else I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. David moves from this place of desperation to at the end, he's, he's singing about a deliverance that God has granted him. But all this takes place in six verses. And in six verses, there's not a lot of time for things to actually change. But there is time for him to gain hope. So let me just kind of show you how all of this lays out as we talk about a paradigm for prayer. The Bible starts off with a very good God creating a very good world. Based on his own initiative, God looks into the void, darkness, and chaos, and God does what he does. God creates beauty from chaos. That's what he does. God makes this world, makes mankind as the crown of his creation. He looks down, and like any good father, he gives them a restriction for their benefit. Don't eat from this tree, and we all know how the rest of things play out. They eat. They sin, they run. God once again comes and initiates with them. And there's this passage there that's referred to as the curse. But I think something different takes place. I think Adam hears more than a curse. He hears this promise. And it's really this promise, this anticipation that the whole Old Testament is built off of. And it's this promise that God says... I will put hostility between you and the woman. He, he says this to the snake. And between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Theologians call that the proto-evangelion or the first 
gospel, God promising that one day he's going to send his seed into the world and this son is going to bruise the head of the snake. He's going to deliver a fatal blow to Satan. In the process, his heel's going to be bruised. It's an injury that you can recover from. We all know Jesus has his heel bruised, but that heel is death, but death doesn't keep him down. It's not a fatal blow. He gets up and he walks off. This is that promise. Now, here's what takes place. Afterwards, Adam looks at his wife and it says that he names her. And it's important that we see this. Adam names all the rest of creation, but it's only after all of this transpires that he names his wife Eve, because she's going to be the mother of all the living. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 the man was in, in, intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. What's Eve saying there? I think she's saying, God made this promise that he's going to send a seed into the world to crush the snake. Me and Adam got busy, and nine months later, he's here. God fulfilled his promise. But then we read and we see Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So they were waiting on this righteous seed to come in and kill the snake. But the first act of killing was brother against brother. Then the genealogy starts to play out. And what we see in Cain's line is as they're technologically advancing, it seems like things get worse and worse and worse until the end of chapter four, he has a great, 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 great grandson named Lamech. And what he says is, uh, I've murdered somebody else. So if Cain's going to get this light bid, give me 77 times what you would give Cain. And then what you have is this. Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. A son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So what Gary Miller in his book says is that this verse is a load-bearing verse in the Bible. When it comes to prayer, this is a load-bearing wall. That at this time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What he says that this means and what he takes through the rest of Scripture is calling on the name of the Lord is calling on God to do what it is that he said he would do. That it was at this time people realized, look, God made a promise and we know that he can trust his, uh, uh, we know that we can trust God's words because the way that God created the world was through words. There's no gap in between his words and his actions. We know that we can trust him. 
But it seems like if God's words were checks, his promises are these post-dated checks. That we know that they're good, but we have to call out and cry to him, God, how long until this takes place? How long until this takes place? And this is what prayer is. It's you and I responding to God's word and saying, God, we want you to do what it is that you said that you would do. Does that make sense? Y'all are stoic and silent, and my church talks back to me, so I've got a better sense of where I am with folks. Yes, all right. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So if we realize this, look, if prayer is a prescription for life in a fallen world, what that does is it helps you and I to take a step back. And we don't treat prayer as this magic incantation that's going to fix all of our circumstances. We don't put that weight on prayer because it'll crumble. Prayer does this. Prayer is meant to remove our concerns before repairing our circumstances. Prayer is meant to remove our concerns before it repairs our circumstances. That Psalm 13 in a nutshell, we're not going to stay here long, but Psalm 13, like every prayer, is made up of at least these three things. Desperation, verses 1 and 2. Desire, verse 3 and 4. Deliverance, verse 5 and 6. Desperation, desire, deliverance. Desperation, what you'll see four times in these two verses. How long? How long? How long? How long? Prayer does this. Prayer starts where our strength comes to an end. That's why the proud don't pray because they never see their, the end of their strength. That's why the humble always pray because they see the end of their strength very, very clearly. And what David's saying, what you and I say is, how long, God, things shouldn't be this way. God, you need to do something about this. God, why haven't you done something about this already? Prayer begins with desperation. Desperation tends to make the days feel incredibly long. Desperation changes how you and I see God. One thing that he's going to say here is, look, how long, Lord? And just hear that first line. Will you forget me? Do you ever feel forgotten by God? It's one thing to feel forgotten by somebody that has a bad memory. My wife has a terrible memory. When she doesn't do the things that she said she would, 
I don't even trip. It's one thing to feel forgotten by a God that's supposed to be omnipresent or, or a God that's supposed to be omniscient. Omniscience, right? If you know everything, do you know what that means? That means it's impossible for you to have a new thought. If you know everything, it's not just that you won't learn, it's that you can't learn. And what he's saying is, God, how long will you forget me? Now, did God actually forget him? No. But that's what desperation does. It changes how you and I see God. And once it changes how we see God, it changes how we see all the rest of life. How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind daily. How long will my enemy dominate me? It changes how he sees himself, how he sees his foes. J.C. Ryle puts it the best when he talks about desperation. He says this, the only way to be really happy in a world such as this is to ever be casting all our cares on God. It is trying to carry their own burdens, which so often makes believers sad. If they will tell their troubles to God, he will enable them to bear them as easily as Samson did the gates of Gaza. If they are resolved to keep them to themselves, they will one day find that the very grasshopper is a burden. I think what he's saying there and what I want you all to hear is, look, we are houses without garages. We are cars without trunks. You have a choice. You can be a hoarder and hoard all of your problems. Or when they all come, you can offload them to, 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 to God. And for those of us in here that are Enneagram twos and we just love to, to help people, um, you are still a house without a garage. So the best way that you help somebody is not by you storing all of their problems, but you helping them to know just where they can offload those problems. Prayer has to start with desperation where our strength comes to an end. But it doesn't just start there. It moves on. And again, I'm going to go through this quick. Uh, desperation then moves on to a desire. Uh, and I just really want to highlight this. Uh, prayer is a desire, not a demand, right? In prayer, um, we, we don't twist God's arm to do anything. His arms are too strong. We plead of him, and he goes on and says this, Consider me, answer me, Lord my God, restore brightness to my eyes, um, or else I'll sleep in death. And what he says, he's at such this low place that what he says is, uh, God, if you don't help me, I'm just going to verbalize the alternative. There's no other help. It's not, I'm just going to be fine. It's either you come and help me or I'm dead. Either I'm going to soar in rejoicing or I'm going to be buried six feet deep. There's no in between. Uh, my wife and I, uh, close to three years ago now, we adopted our first daughter, Ava. So my wife and I um, have 
been married a little more than 12 years. And for the first 10 years, we, we didn't have um, kids, just couldn't. We adopted our daughter, um, and she was uh, uh, preemie. So born 30 weeks. She was three and a half pounds when she was born, this tiny old thing. By the time we brought her home, she was four pounds. Um, and something clicked for me, and it changed. When me and my wife were in a disagreement and we were in bed and she would say, uh, John, get me a cup of water, depending on how I felt, I'd say, well, you forgot me today, so go and get it yourself. She'll be fine. If I don't get her that water, she'll be fine. She can get up herself and go and get it. When our daughter first came home, we had to feed her every three hours for the first three or four months. And when she cried, uh, there was a different desperation and desire in her cry. Regardless of how mean or rude she had been to me, I knew if I don't go and help, she's not going to be fine. What David's saying is, as we pray, he gets to a place where, where, where he says, God, I'm not going to be fine. If you don't step in, I'm going to sleep in death. And when you're that desperate, you don't make demands of anybody. You ask. You desire. But then it ends off with deliverance. Verse 5. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart right here will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. And the question that you asked is what changed from verse 1 through 6? Apparently nothing but his perspective. But do you know what he did have? He had this confidence, this tangible confidence that God was going to come through on his word. So even as hope is rooted in the future, my heart will rejoice. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. Um, I think the best word picture that I can give of this is this. Look, God has been gracious to us, not just in the things he's provided for us, but primarily in what he's promised to us. And his promises are tangible. Uh, years ago, there was this story of Michael Irvin, Dallas Cowboy, who got his first guaranteed contract for $22 million. And they asked him how he wanted it paid. And he said, I want it in a check. One check. Don't spread it out. Give me one check. He goes into the locker room, finds his name, looks down there, and there is this check. And it says $22 million, and it's signed by Jerry Jones. And he picks up that check, and do you know what he says? I'm rich. Now, was he rich? Did he actually have 
the bags of money with him? No. Do you know what he had? He had a promise. Written on a promissory note. And it was only as good as the signature, but he knew that signature is good, so I'm rich. I can live not based on what I see, but based on what I know, based on what I've heard of this guy. And that's what the Lord has done with Jesus. Jesus' blood is that signature on that line so that regardless of what you and I face in the fallen world that we live in, prayer now becomes this prescription. Prayer is this divine ATM card where Paul says that we've already been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavens. And do you know how we draw out from those? Prayer. I think it's better to think of it like this. Look, um, we tend to come into times like this and we say things like, man, I really want to pray more. I really want to pray more. I really want to pray more. Um, and yes, we do want to pray more, but we have to remember prayer is not the destination. Prayer is the, the pathway. Just saying I want to pray more is like somebody that's thirsty saying, I really want more straws. I really want more straws. I really want more straws. It, straws, straws are good and they're a useful tool, but they're just that. They're the tool that's meant to get you to the end. In the same way that straws are the way that you and I drink of a beverage that refreshes a parched throat. Prayer is the way that you and I drink of the peace of God that's meant to refresh parched souls. Prayer, God's prescription for life in a fallen world. God's made a promise, and when we pray, we simply ask God to do that which he already wants to do. Questions, comments, concerns? All right. If you'll give me 20 minutes and then we'll take a break, I just want to work through really quick the pattern of the Lord Jesus when, uh, that we see when it comes to prayer in the Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 to 15. Would somebody else just stand up with a loud voice and read that for us? Mike, why don't you do it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, Matthew 6, verse 7 through 15. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll, they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask them. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Prayer 
is power. Prayer is power. There's three different responses that take place to that phrase. Since we're complex folks, there may be a blend of all three inside of us. Prayer is power. Some folks immediately want to challenge that. When a tragedy takes place and folks say thoughts and prayers, uh, what they'll do is they'll say people need more than just prayers. So they don't think prayer is power. Prayer is power. Some, some folks would say amen to that, but it's nothing more than a cliche. A cliche or um, things that we relay, uh, but things that we don't rely on, right? So we may be here in a room and say prayer is power, and we know deep down in our hearts that we don't pray. Why don't we pray? I think some of us don't pray because we're too busy to pray. That I think we're too concerned trying to provide for our own physical, emotional, social, relational means to where prayer feels like a distraction. Some of us don't pray because we're too burdened to pray. We feel like life has just knocked the wind out of us and even the thought of praying feels like a waste of time. I think some of us are in here and we don't pray because we're too bitter to pray, that we tried our hand at praying to God for things and, you know, we prayed for a baby for 10 years and seeing the look in your wife's eyes month after month after month for 10 years starts to add up and you just stop praying. Uh, but I think some of us are too blessed to pray. That we really don't pray because we have everything that we need and more than what we need. So we don't think to ask God for help because life is just going really good. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum, um, I want you to know that in Scripture, when Jesus talks about prayer, um, you know, there's a lot of things that he'll say that after he says them, you kind of step back and feel like, ouch, that hurt. There's some things that he'll say that leave you feeling guilty and ashamed. Uh, but I'm convinced Jesus is no more encouraging than when he talks about prayer. When he talks about prayer, he never uses guilt as a motivating factor. He almost always uses incentive. Doesn't try to goad us in. He tries to draw us in. And that's what we see here. So I just want to break this up into two halves and give us a pattern for prayer. And the very first one is this, 9 and 10. Um, and I think the aim that he gives us is this, God's glory is greater than God's gifts. 
when it comes to prayer, God's glory is greater than God's uh, gifts. The thing about this prayer is it becomes uh, uh, incredibly easy to follow if you do this. Follow the pronouns. Follow the pronouns in this prayer and the meaning literally jumps off of the page. The very first one that says this. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My daughter's two and a half years old, and uh, one of her favorite phrases now is uh, me first, me first, me first. So we get back home from um, the Montessori school that she's in, and, and she says, Daddy, me first. I want to get out the, the car first. Um, and I just kind of look back at her, and it's like, no, me first. Look, if, if you get out of the car first and we do all of this stuff for you first, you're just going to run headlong into danger. Your safety is wholly tied up in me first as your father. When it comes to prayer, Jesus is saying, yo, God's saying the same thing, right? Me, him first. So we start off and he says, our father in heaven. And the first pronouns that you see here are all second person plural. Your name be on this holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When it comes to prayer, think he first. When it comes to prayer, think we first. When it comes to prayer, think any other pronoun that rhymes with me first, right? You can even go old school and the first, right? All of those things come before me first. And he starts off and his aim here is as we pray, the very first thing is that you and I long for God's glory before we long for his gifts. Prayer starts off with this, look. Embracing not just a relationship with God, but relationships. The first two words are so important. He doesn't start off with my father. What he does is he starts off with our Father, and I just want you to grasp this. These plural pronouns are important because everywhere else in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is instructing people, he's going to use singular pronouns. If your right hand causes you to sin, you, guy in the gray shirt, you cut it off. But then when it comes to prayer, he says, all right, you, Clay, this is how you should pray plural pronouns, that although our praying is never meant to impress people, our praying should always involve them. Our Father, from the outset, we are embracing not just this special relationship that I have with God, but this special relationship that we have with God. As we pray, we ought to be praying with a family in mind. And not just that, but we are to view God as Father 
J.I. Packer says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this thought doesn't prompt and control his worship, prayer, and whole outlook on life, he doesn't understand Christianity very well. Everything that makes Christianity distinct is summed up in the knowledge of God as father. Father is the Christian name for God. And so what he's saying is we start off with this concept of viewing God as father. I was shaped very early on in how I viewed this in that 10 years ago when we came to plant Blueprint Church, two of the pastors that I worked with uh, had sons that were autistic. And one of the things that I saw in them was the way that they doted and loved on their sons who would forever be dependent on them, who would never be the star of the football team, who constantly frustrated other people that they came in touch with. And I saw the way these fathers unconditionally loved their sons and being reminded of the fact that that's how the Bible wants us to view God. And this prayer starts off saying, look, not just our father, but our father in heaven. In heaven is not just about a location. It's about a position of power. It's like saying somebody is in the White House. We're not just saying he is at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We're saying something about the authority and power that he has. So this prayer starts off and it says this. Look, if your father, if the most powerful being in the universe is inclined to give you what you asked for. If you knew that you had the ear of the most powerful being that existed, what would you ask for? What would dominate the requests that you had? My daughter gets into a movie and she stays there, so we've watched Aladdin uh, for the past four days. And what you find is when somebody has access to that power, do you know what they ask for? Do you know what they start with? Me first. But what Jesus helps us see is, no, 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 listen. We want to long for God's glory more than we long for his gifts. That what's really wrong with the world that we live in are these things that God's name isn't honored as holy. That his kingdom hasn't come, that his will is not done here. You think about the shooting that took place in Odessa, Texas. Months ago where five folks were killed, 21 people were injured. Why did that take place? Because people didn't grasp the creature-creator distinction. They didn't realize that God is in a class all his own, and as the creator of life, he's the only one that has the right to determine who lives and who dies. Why is there racism in the world that we live in? Why is this diversity conversation one that's so hard to 
have and even more difficult for churches and communities to embody because we have a bunch of people living to establish their own kingdoms because they find themselves part of kingdoms where the vulnerable and marginalized are exploited and not protected. But I tell you, if God's kingdom comes, if his work is done here on earth as it is in heaven, that concern vanishes. And on and on and on. Listen, Jesus is instructing this crowd of people in how to pray with all of their different concerns, burdens, situations, frustrations, all of those are unique. And when he teaches them how to pray, he gives them the exact same template. Why? Because maybe the things that are on the forefront of your mind aren't the things that you really need the most. Maybe there's something else that's meant to reorient the way that we live. And all of this is all, right, the shorthand of all of this is, God, we want your presence to come and to rest on us and this world and whatever place that we're in, in a very, very real way. Do you know what changes for us if our prayers start like this? Do you know what realistically changes your anxiety, your heartache, your frustration? Think, think back to the things today that made you feel most angry. And it's likely your name not being honored as holy. It's likely ambitions that you set, things that you hoped that God would do, those things come crumbling down. Your kingdom, your will not being done. As Jesus aims, to remove our concerns before repairing our circumstances. The first thing that he does is he wants this paradigm shift that you and I would be those that long for God's glory before we long for his gifts. My time is running out and I just want to uh, make sure that I get through all of this. The back half of the uh, verse just help us see this. Look, when God's glory is the aim, his gifts become the ammunition. All that that means is this. When we see God's glory as the thing that we long for, uh, above all else, his presence invading not just this world, but our lives, it changes how you and I pray for the things that, 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 uh, that, that we need. Uh, uh, there's at least three things that we're told to pray for. Provision. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Or, or, 
give us today our daily bread provision. Pardon, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and protection. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What we find is that these three things aren't just things that we're to pray for. These three things are things that are wholly tied into God's glory being seen here on the earth. Let's start with provision, something as small as bread. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9 says this. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need. Otherwise, I may have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal profaning the name of my God. Do you know what this is? This is a man who realizes uh, that it is possible to eat and drink to the glory of God. He sees something as small as the bread that he eats, Velcro tied to God's glory being displayed in the earth. And what he says is, God, I pray that you would give me the bread that I need. Do you know why? Because if you don't and I'm tempted to steal, that would reflect poorly on you. God, but if you give me more than I need, and I know what success does to your people, I know what success does when people feel like they don't need you. God, I don't want to have so much that I lose sight of the fact that I'm wholly dependent on you for it all because that would reflect poorly on you. And so he prays, God, give me just what I need so that in the way that I eat, your sufficiency is clearly seen. How many of us would ever think to pray like this. But he just starts off and says, all right, Lord, please do this for me. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Praying for pardon. Our lives are like um, pieces of paper and all we have are pens. Any mistake that you make cannot be erased. At best, it could be crossed out, but that just makes a bigger mess. Listen, I, I just say all that to say um, your future acts of obedience to God do not make up for the past mistakes that you've made. There is an ongoing debt that's incurred, and the only way that you and I will ever have peace with God is not from future performance, but from past pardon, complete forgiveness, which is what Christ has done. And what he's saying is, yo, this is the fuel for us to give that same forgiveness. And so he's praying, being completely dependent. As often as we ask for bread, God, I pray that you would forgive me, forgive us. And then lastly, he prays for protection from not falling. And I think that the main point is this, is that when we think of being faithful to the Lord Jesus, so many of us think that that's going to come as a result of our hard work. We think of it like a self-defense class. I've just got to get good enough or strong enough to stand these tests. Uh, 
But that's not what Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to cry out for help. Years ago, uh, uh, I'm a PK. I grew up in church, but I was uh, the type of PK that grew up in church that got in fights in the bathroom. And one day I got in a fight with my God brother. Um, and as we start to, to yeah, square up, my brothers are there with me. Um, and, and, and my God brother, who, who was a big dude, was quicker than I thought. And he got the first hit, just punched me square in the mouth. And all I remember is backpedaling and saying, help. Um, <laughs> and both of my brothers jumped on him. And we won. <laughs> and I realized at that point, I don't have to learn how to fight so long as I have my brothers around that can cry for help. But I have to learn how to fight because they're not always going to be around. What Jesus is saying is, I'm always going to be around. So whether it is provision, whether it is pardon, whether it is protection, Listen, he is telling us to pray for the things that you and I are tempted to get for ourselves and the things that you and I are tempted to keep to ourselves once we get those. Think of this first prayer. Give us today our daily bread. How many of us woke up this morning and pray, God, I pray that you would give me the food that I need to eat today. If you're anything like me, today's the 15th or the 16th. Yeah. 17th, yeah. <laughs> Either way, my bank account has a few more dollars in it uh, than it did on the 14th. And I woke up this morning confident that if I needed to eat, my confidence was going to be in the money that I had in my bank account. I don't even think to pray this because I already as assume that I just have it. Listen, God being gracious to me in providing the food that I needed to eat, instead of it fueling me to pray more, do you know what it does inside of me? It makes me take for granted the ways that he's answering prayers without me praying them. Well, if you and I were to wake up each morning look, and actually obey and follow his instruction, do you know what most of us would have in here? We would have this unbroken streak of God answering prayers, which is meant to be a trail of breadcrumbs for when your soul is really starved, you could go back and say, but wait a minute, every day I've prayed and God has fed me with the food that I needed. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that that is God actually at work. And Jesus setting the pattern for prayer around ordinary things, it's meant to build our faith, not make prayer obsolete. 
One last thing. Follow the pronouns. And it changes how you engage with prayer. Remember, he's telling individuals. Clay, Mike, Shannon, when you pray, you're to sit and say, God, I, I pray that you would give us the food that we need for today. Do you know how that transforms a church? It makes a church a generous church. Here's why I think that's the case. Imagine that you as a church, each person wakes up, each one and says, God, I pray that you would give us the food that we need to eat for the day. And Shannon, you go out and you get a promotion, right? You get this raise. Jason says, Shannon, you're killing it. <laughs> you get this huge raise. And then say somebody comes along and it's like, yo, Jason, hey, man, you're fired, bro. Sorry. You get a raise. He doesn't have a job. What you can say is, oh, God, you answered our prayer. I prayed that you would give us what we need to eat. You gave me more than what I need. He doesn't have what he needs. But now we all have what, what we need. And as we pray in this ordinary way, it changes how we view the things that are in our hands. Praying, God, forgive us of our debts. What does that do? Do you know what it does? It turns a, a church into a church that doesn't hold grudges, but a church that becomes very gracious. Because we expect that even amongst the people of God, there are going to be debts incurred. And all those times that somebody sins against us, it's an opportunity for us to confront our brother in love. And if they turn and repent, then we've won our brother. It turns God's church into a glorious church. A church where people don't spend their time fighting with their willpower to overcome pornography addiction, hidden drug addictions, bouts of anger and depression and things that they just can't get past. But it, 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 it makes a church, right, get on their knees and realize that sometimes prayer does things that preaching just can't do. That the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 gives one of the most detailed pictures of the Trinity in all of Scripture where he talks about God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and their unique but complementary roles in redemption. And he breaks it all down and it's beautiful. And then the very next thing that he does is he says, ah, but I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the hope. He's saying, I can explain it all day, but there's something about you taking that check to the bank and cashing it and walking out with those bags of money. And this is the pattern that the Lord Jesus 
gives us. We long for God's glory more than his gifts. We pray for his presence. And then in light of that, as we pray for his gifts, we always tie them back to his presence. In this prayer, it spans from heaven to earth. From the work of God, the power that God has, to this God frustrating the plans of Satan. And for those of us who haven't prayed this prayer well, there is one who has. Lord Jesus. We talk a whole lot about his last words, but one thing that we don't spend enough time on are his last prayers. John 17, he prays, Father, the hours come, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. He's praying for God's glory. And the hour that he's going to talk through in John is his crucifixion. So he said, God, I want your glory, even if it comes at the expense of my life. Talk about praying for God's will. And we're going to talk through this one. Not what I will, but what you will at the cost of his life. On the cross, he's praying, look, not forgive us, because he didn't have any sins to be forgiven of, but God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing as they actively kill him. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Lord's prayer ends off with this little, if we don't forgive here, then we shouldn't expect for God to forgive. That it's tying our forgiveness expressed as a sign of if forgiveness has really been embraced. Jesus on the cross, who is giving his life so that, God, so that forgiveness could be extended and received, is abandoned by God. But then what takes place? But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the roots were split. For all of those who feel distant from God, like there is no access, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, at this time, it split that curtain, that physical dividing wall that you could see there's something that stands in between me and God because of what Christ has done. There's this full and free access that you and I have to the throne of grace. Jesus not only teaches us about the pattern, he embodies it for all of us that have failed so that we can be encouraged all the more to do so. We long for God's glory before we long for his possessions. So when we long for his possessions, we see it as a way that we show off his glory. Let's pray and take a break and we'll come back in about eight minutes. Um, yeah. Oh, Father, it seems like... Um, yeah, there's so many things that uh, stand in the way of us.
praying to you each day, Father. We feel like uh, there's so many reasons or excuses that we can come up with. Uh, but the more and more that we sit back with all of those things, we find that the, that the common denominator of all of it is a desire. We don't want to. Maybe we feel like we're not competent, that we don't know how. Maybe we feel like it won't work. Maybe we're just frustrated and weary and tired. I pray that um, as our time goes on that we would be uh, wowed by the access that we have to you, Father, that our hearts would be filled with the type of gratitude that just it causes praise to be the reflex of our soul, Father, the type of gratitude that has us singing and pleading without thinking or knowing why, Father. God, I pray that you would do something in our hearts uh, right now. Thank you for the time that we spent thus far. I pray that you would uh, be with us as we continue to move through the rest of this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's right. Let's uh, break until about uh, 